Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 145 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hey there. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hey guys. Dylan's sad because his beloved Packers just lost a big game. Their season's over, and you must feel over too. Yeah, time has no meaning. Are you going to be able to get through the episode, Dell? I'll just leave this recording on and then just take a nap on this couch. That's what you do every episode. Yeah, that is true, actually. Yeah, every time you've heard Dylan on the podcast, he's sleep talking. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, I have some news, which is very upsetting, and I don't, I don't want to upset the listeners, but... Hey, it's 2021, baby. We're all used to upsetting news. <laughs> yes. Hand it down. So, look at this beautiful book, Toby. This is my only first edition book. The Name mm. of the Rose by Umberto Eco, which Andrew gave to me as a lovely gift. I will describe it for the listener. It is. Uh, it looks like a book. Uh, it's like rectangular. <laughs> it's like, what's that in the middle? Pages? It's uh, one of those cool, it looks like from the 80s, like hardbound. It's got some gilt on the cover. It's great. Yes, it's a first edition published in 1980. Then, in the night... The, <laughs> in the night. In the night. Just like how, you know, monks do some dirty deeds in the night in this book. My cat, Wallace, brother Wallace, knocked an entire glass of water on my book. <sighs> and now it's all janky. Water is the blood of books. Describe it, Toby. And it looks waterlogged. And like, look how bent the... Mm-hmm. You know what? Honestly, though, I'm don't hate me when you describe this incident to us in all capitals. Yeah. Uh, I expected it to be worse because sometimes if you spill a whole glass of water on a paperback book, mm-hmm. it'll look like it's on LSD. It'll be like all wavy and crazy, but this looks fine. It looks like there's a little bit of water on it. So that's the topic of today's episode. Uh, pro waterlogged <laughs> books or con waterlogged books? Well, honestly, like I feel like this is affecting my decision to keep it on my shelf. Hey, I got that for you. <laughs> <laughs> but ironically, one of the themes of the book is destroying books so what wow is that ironic am i using that right if he was trying to destroy the book but then solved a murder in the process of destroying the book that might that be ironic be a, yeah here's no. the thing i was an english teacher and i still can't entirely explain it it's mm. like you know it when you see it mm. um so dylan is bringing it up as we speak as a good producer does um, but he found an interesting graphic the other day that described how much it costs to propose at every single major baseball stadium um in america and this is follow-up from the proposal where they propose at dodger stadium at dodger stadium okay. yeah so i read the proposal by jasmine guillory three stars i think <laughs> um, <laughs> um but yeah the the inciting incident is that is a proposal a public proposal at the dodger stadium the only thing i have to say about this is that nick in that story might have given a little bit more credit to her clueless boyfriend because he proposed at the most expensive stadium in america 2500 bucks a pop the la dodgers that's a lot yeah that's nuts for context folks uh, New York Yankee Stadium, I think just called the Yankee Stadium, is $100 each. $100. Which, if you know anything about the Yankees, they're known for, you know, throwing a lot of money around. You'd yeah. think that they'd want to be making some cash back on that. That is absolutely shocking to me. And the Dodgers are $1,000 more 
than the closest competitor, which is the Washington Nationals for $1,500. What's the cheapest? The cheapest, there's... The um, Phillies will pay you to propose there. <laughs> no, the Pirates uh, The Pirates is the cheapest. Pittsburgh Pirates, which is $39. <laughs> they didn't want to go for that extra dollar. They didn't want to scare away business. That'd be really suspicious if you're proposing to your girlfriend. It's like, why do we have to fly out to Pittsburgh to do this? It's a, it's a, we love the Dodgers. It's an away game. What? <laughs> I love Pittsburgh. Uh, Jillian's Spent two years there. I actually love going to Pirate Stadium. It's a beautiful ballpark right on the river. Mm. But that so fits my experience there, which is that that team has always been so bad (laughs) that everything is so cheap. Like you could sit on the first baseline for 25 bucks. So I can imagine like you're on the phone and you're like, yeah, so I want it to be during the seventh inning stretch. I just really want to make it special for her. And the other guy's like, yeah, yeah. So how are you at shortstop? Do you, do, you, do you want to come down? We'll just hit some balls to you, see how it goes. I would say that, Dylan, if you proposed to me at the Dodgers game, I would be furious, oh. both because I don't like um, being on display and because you would have spent that much money. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Does anybody have any shame to report before we go into our reviews? I am shameless uh, on stars. Showtime, I think. Showtime. <laughs> I'm also shameless. I have a tiny tiny just little baby piece mm. of shame Uh-oh. the way he says it makes me think it's not baby shame <laughs> no it is it's just one book just the one book i filled a cart with more books but i only got the one Ooh. Mm. my friend uh dylan not spelled the same way as my brother-in-law and person i tolerate dylan what? um <laughs> don't worry about it um who also listens to the show told me that he had ordered a copy of George Saunders' new book from his local bookshop in Queens, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, and he'd accidentally gotten a signed copy. (gasps) He had emailed the store and they told him that there were a few left, so I had him pick one up for me as well. If you can get a signed copy, it's worth having to announce your shame on your podcast. Everyone has this problem. He's a living genius. (laughs) I'm really bad at this. Have we done George Saunders yet? Yeah. Yeah. We we did Lincoln Lincoln Lombardo. That was Toby's favorite, I think, from... Of the first year. Yeah. Producer Dylan. Oh, no, I was sleeping through that. (laughs) Cool. 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 Uh, Andrew, you know what? Respect. Yeah. Game respect respect. game. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't feel too bad about it. I also have another Saunders on my list. So we're going to have some George Saunders City at some point during this this podcast run. If I ever make it out New Yorkie way, I kind of want to see that edition. All right. Well, check it out. This week, I think we should have a pretty lively review because we have a book (laughs) that I have read that Toby and Andrew read for the first time because it was on both of their lists, but it is Toby's review. Toby, what book did you read this week? I read Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. Blood, blood, blood. Magic, magic, folklore, magic. Folklore, folklore. Swords. And staffs. Weird uh, staffs that expand like a magic trick. Okay, here is my logline. In Tomi Adeyemi's Children of Blood and Bone, a young woman named Zaley fights to return magic to Orisha, a land abandoned by the gods and controlled by a brutal despot who hates maggots, the offensive term used to refer to Zaley and all magi like her, those whose pure white hair marks them as separate from the rest of the people of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. I have a question just to shame myself. Did you listen to it or did you read it like physical copy? I listened to it. So I thought all of those names are pronounced differently. So I am a dumb. Let's continue. Yeah, they're like standard fantasy names where it's like... It could be anything. Yeah. All right. Anyway, continue. So, yeah, I put this book on my list because it's very well reviewed. Um, I actually had a question for you guys. How much do you respect 
Goodreads ratings. Like I respect them maybe a little bit too much where it's like if something has like a 3.2, even if I was interested, I'm like, oh, do I really want to read this? Well, I think people are generally pretty nice, but if it Mm -hmm. has almost a five, that's really impressive if there are a lot of reviews. And if it has a three or a two and there are a lot of reviews. So I would say, yeah, but if it's a four, I think it could go either way. Oh, okay. Andrew? I do not care about <laughs> Goodreads reviews. Well, Cause I find that like the most popular books get rated. I think they just, it kind of inflates the rating a lot. Mm. And I find like a lot of books that I tend to gravitate towards tend to have like a high three mm. because it's sort of like a little bit more off the beaten path. I don't know. That sounded really conceited, but I just, I, you know, my books tend to have a little bit of a low, lower rating on Goodreads. No worries. them before they're cool, if that yeah, makes sense. I like to read the one star reviews, though, because yeah. they're pretty funny. Although it's annoying when all of them are like, I didn't finish it. And I'm like, OK, yeah. well. So, yeah, I only mentioned that because this has a very good Goodreads rating. I think it's a time I chose it. It was like 4.2, which is pretty that's, that's solid. Good. Yeah. So I felt like I was in good hands. And let's just I'll throw that out there. I just want to reiterate how I said, Toby, you're going to hate this book, and you got angry with me. Okay. Listeners will remember, Pejos, remember. I thought that you were generalizing just because it was YA, and I don't have anything against YA. Okay. You have a lot against YA. No, I do not. Okay, I just want to remind the listener that I thought you would hate it. Yeah, well, interesting. (laughs) So I'll say um, the best parts about this book are the atmosphere and the history of Orisha. The, uh, the place that it takes place. Um, the events of the book take place 11 years after an attempted genocide of Zaylee, the main character's people. The book is absolutely unflinching about this aspect of the history of Arisha. Zaylee's mother died that night and they refer to that a lot. Um, and the scars that it's left on the land and on Zaylee and other people in the book um, are deep and real and feel intense and are probably my favorite thing about the book is that kind of how brutal that history is and how unflinchingly the book deals with it. Um, Arisha is a really terrifying place. It's ruled over by a almost cartoonishly evil king named King Saran. He hates Magi with a truly unreasonable passion that seems ridiculous, even when the very predictable reason why he hates them so much is revealed in the end of the book. Even when you get that reveal, you're like, you don't seem like an adult. You seem like you just really hate these people like beyond any sane reasons. Um, the other people in the book are Zaylee's brother, Zane, and King Saran's children, Amari and Inan. Um, Amari is the princess. Inan is the prince. Prince is like a, a young... Hot. He's hot. He's very hot. <laughs> um, want to make sure we understand that. He's like a young warrior type. And Amari is a young princess type. I don't know what to say about her. Her journey is from weak to strong, which mm-hmm. kind of leans into my orcs later. But anyway, not that that's anything wrong with that storyline. It's just... Very Toby hates when people become stronger. We get it. <laughs> um, so Amari witnesses the killing of her servant and best friend by the hand of her father, and she retaliates completely out of scope by stealing a magic scroll that can restore magic to the land of Arisha and fleeing the palace for the first time in her life, leaving her entire world behind. She falls in with Zaylee and Zane, and the three of them are set off an adventure to try and restore magic to the land uh, with Amari's older brother trailing them on the orders of her father to get the princess back, get the scroll back, and stop magic returning from the land. So it's a very classic, very straightforward fantasy setup. It reminded me of Aladdin when Jasmine runs into the marketplace. From your uh, review so far, Toby, five stars. <laughs> I was going to say, these are elves, but you've you've the, shown your hand a little bit. Yeah, so I'll say that was supposed to be mostly a plot summary. I did slip in my elves there. You know, the elves are, yeah, the dark parts of this story feel real. I think it's why it gets a lot of credit and it deserves a lot of credit is its unflinching view of 
genocide, prejudice, abuse, mental illness, lots of really intense things. And I think those are the good parts of the book. Um, I also think that maggots is a really good made up slur. That's so few elves. <laughs> well, see, they're called maggots because they have white hair. It's cr- it's cool. It's a, it's a good slur. You know, sometimes it's hard to come up with made up slurs. The orc. Is it? Hey, hey Toby, you want to go into your orcs? Because it seems like you want to go into your orcs, my dude. <laughs> Um, the orcs are everything else. Um, the characters are pretty one note and they're very YA. There's the hot. What does that mean, Toby? Yeah, what does YA mean, huh? So here's what I'll say. I'll say I do and Bailey will back me up. She'll be forced to because I've heard her agree with me in other places. I forget who said it. Maybe you know, Bailey, but I heard somewhere where it's like a really great YA book is not a book written for teenagers. It's a good book where the protagonists happen to be teenagers. Yes. You like the cream of the crop YA. Yeah. So in this case, when you're reading just a mediocre YA, it, it feels like trash. I wouldn't say trash, but yeah, it, it really let me down because I was really hyped. Okay. Because um, I was expecting when YA is really good, I do really like it. I love like feeling like a teenager again and feeling caught up in emotions and getting excited. So I was expecting that and I was let down. So when you say the characters are YA, does that mean that they're like obsessed with crushing on people like what does that mean no it felt like a very ya adventure by numbers to me like we have the protagonist who is so hot-headed that she defies logic at every turn and literally cannot make decisions we have the loving elder brother who exists to kind of support her and doesn't really have a perspective of his own he kind of fights back and has his own wants and desires but not really we have the sweet princess who's secretly a butt kicker and she makes that turn very abruptly very late in the book they all kind of fall into their tropes and they never really felt real to me because they all kind of hit the same note over and over and over again. Um, With the exception of Inan, who has a cool storyline where he is kind of a true believer in the suppression of the Magi, um, but then it turns out he is a Magi and kind of conflicted, you know, which side will he join? The only problem with that is that at near the end of the book, he ping-pongs back and forth so violently between what he believes and what he doesn't believe. It's ridiculous and it feels very in service to the plot. The plot itself is a thousand miles an hour. You never get a chance to breathe. You never meet anybody for long enough to care about them. You're basically, a lot of people are in the story just to die. You know, you're supposed to feel sad, but it's like, I met this person like 20 pages ago. Like, <laughs> I know they're going to die. And it happens twice. Like, I'm with you on that one, too. <laughs> yeah. The magic is both extremely complex in terms of lore and stuff you're expected to remember. And also overly simple. Her magic is supposedly she animates the spirits of the dead. It turns out to be a very broad spectrum of powers and it's never really defined. Like, So it's that same problem that I had with an earlier book where it's like you go into a situation and it's not like, okay, I understand the stakes. I understand what she can do. How is she possibly going to overcome this? It's like, well, I don't really know what she's going to do. Oh, okay, she solved the problem. Mm. There's an insta-love romance that's pretty awful. There is uh, Zaley's weapon is like a staff that expands that makes no sense. Why do you have a problem with that in a fantasy world? It's a stick that shoots out like a switchblade. It's not a magic, but it's not, but it's not described as a magic staff. That's the thing. It's, it's not. Well, no, but switchblades aren't magic and they hide a blade inside of the them. But the switchblade, you're holding the handle and the handle has the staff in it, right? This is like a staff that you can hold like it's very small and comes large enough to be a staff. Dear Pedro, I had no issue imagining <laughs> this. <laughs> I have no memory of this. It just reminds me of like those lightsabers we all played with, with as kids where they, you know, like the little yeah. cones and you could flick out the cones. <laughs> and then my one of my biggest and most silly um, orcs is the quote unquote magical animals, which is the lionels and pantheners. You know, this is supposed to be a subjugated people who are crushed beneath the heel of a despot. 
and yet they have like a terrifying beast that is large enough to at one point carry four adults on its back and at another point jumps over a city wall carrying her brother on his back. So this thing must be like five, six hundred pounds. It's a gigantic cat. And it accompanies them on most of their adventure. They never say like, hey, go figure out how to feed our cat 600 pounds of meat today. (laughs) There's just a lot of details like that that don't feel very thought through. Um, I had a lot of problems with this book. I was excited for it. I think, you know, I can see why people like it, kind of. (laughs) But I think there's a better version of this book out there. And ultimately, I gave it two stars. Ooh. Harsh, 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 Uh harsh. Andrew, did you did you agree with Toby? I don't disagree with every point he's making. Mm. The main thing I disagree with is I had no problem with the um, the cats with air at the end of them or the staff. <laughs> they found a lion air cub and then they raised it. Mm-hmm. Everyone seems to have them. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with my rating so you can sort of get that as a baseline comparison. I know we don't do half stars. If I were doing a half star, it's a three and a half. I bump it up to four, mainly because I like to round up and also because of one major thing, which is that the ending of the book surprised me. That's fair. Like, I'm tempted to buy the next book and read it. So I think automatically with YA fantasy series, that's job number one for the book. What I think it comes down to, and I don't want to harp on this forever, is that it didn't quite hit the balance for me between a novel that is interesting for an adult to read and a novel that I think a kid would like. Mm. It's very violent. And so like the target age group has got to be like 13 or 14 plus Mm -hmm. but it also isn't like quite say good enough no (laughs) and it's not good it's not quite like unexpected or surprising enough to interest an adult reader and i completely agree with that no i i i will piggyback off that andrew and say that you know my biggest critique with it i agree with a lot of the things besides the staff thing um (laughs) it makes no sense (laughs) but um, this was framed to me as the next harry potter oh wow like entertainment weekly had a whole spread about how this was the newest biggest book and so i was excited to be like not able to put it down and i just thought it was like fine ya it was very put downable it's very put downable Um, And I thought it got repetitive in the second act. Like it was like caught, then escape, caught, then escape. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I'm with Andrew. I would give it three and a half, but I rounded up to four. I do have a question before we move on. Toby, would you read the next book? Would you read uh, Children of Virtue and Vengeance? Absolutely not. I will read that book. Uh, From the Goodreads reviews, I don't know how excited you should be to to read the next book. Uh I would would listen to it. I don't know that I would buy the next book. Mm. Okay. But Bailey, final question. Yeah. Would you get mad at me if I bought a collapsible bow staff? That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking of. Okay, so Dylan is showing. This is a thing that shows up online. I've seen many videos of it. It's like a cheap magic trick where it's like a staff where it fits in like the palm of your hand. Yeah. And you press a button. It's like a metal thing. And it you kind of open your hand and it shoots out to be like six feet long. Mm-hmm. That's what I was imagining. And the lightsaber thing. And neither of them seem structurally sound to beat someone to death with. They have different materials. I don't know. Open your mind. <laughs> Look, Toby, come back to me in three to five shipping days, and I'll tell you how my last are. Oh, my God. Dylan's going to lose an eye. <laughs> All right. Um, moving on, does Andrew, do you have any facts about Tomei Adeyemi? So, yeah, Tomei Adeyemi. I have some facts about her. Oh, I bet she's awesome. I bet she's such a nice person, and I'm going to feel so terrible. 
So, Tomi Adeyemi was born on August 1st, guess when, 1993. So she is 27 years old currently. This book came out when she was 24. And she was born to parents who had immigrated from Nigeria. Her father was a doctor before leaving Nigeria and then worked as a taxi driver uh, while working to transfer his accreditations and qualifications, which she since has. And her mother worked as a cleaner and now runs nonprofits outside of Chicago. She was raised in the Chicago area and went on to attend Harvard University, ever heard of it, Mm. where she studied English literature and graduated with honors. After she graduated from Harvard, she traveled to Brazil on a fellowship where she had the opportunity to study West African mythology, um, which clearly has had a great influence on her writing. In fact, this is from an interview with The Guardian. Um, I was in a gift shop there and the African gods and goddesses were depicted in such a beautiful and sacred way. It really made me think about all the beautiful images we never see featuring black people. Another aspect that influenced her work, and she's very forthright about this, were the all too prevalent videos of assaults and violence and murders of black people by police officers. And Adeyemi describes the book as an allegory for the modern black experience. So this is from the same interview with The Guardian. Every moment of violence in the book is based on real footage, she says, explaining that an early scene in which Zele is attacked by a guard was inspired by the notorious video of a police officer pushing a teenage girl to the ground at a pool party in Texas. Quote, it's not my intention to be gratuitous, but I want people to be aware that these are things that are happening and the actual videos are much worse. I did notice the connection to like the Black Lives Matter movement that, that reminded me of their, you know, cause, but I didn't notice the direct correlations. Neither did I. After her studies in Brazil, she moved to Los Angeles, where she worked for a film production company. During this time, she wrote her first novel, which didn't really gain any traction. She gave herself a year to write her next novel, uh, which became Children of Blood and Bone. Guess what? 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 It got published. I know. Um, It was an immediate success, debuting as the YA hardcover bestseller, earning awards, becoming just a regular bestseller, and being sold for a movie deal in the seven figures. Yowza. I will say that... Um, I had heard some of this buzz, and I think there are some projects um, like the recent Lovecraft Country and some other ones where it's like, I think this could probably be improved upon into a movie or a TV show. The bones of the idea are really good and the story points are there. So it's like, if this came as a TV show, I might actually watch it. Like, I bet it would be good. Mm -hmm. What about the blood of it? (laughs) I get it, Dylan. Yeah, no, I got it. I just didn't laugh that much. Um, the sequel, Children of Virtue and Vengeance, was published in 2019, and it's a planned trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ariyemi had a mini controversy uh, when she accused author Nora Roberts of plagiarizing her title. Mm-hmm. Um, Roberts had uh, titled and submitted her book, which came out as Of Blood and Bone, first, and was critical of Ariyemi for not checking her facts or promptly retracting her accusation. So just a reminder, if you come for Nora Roberts, you best not <laughs> Also, there are like <laughs> so many books that are children of something and mm-hmm. blood or yeah. Yeah, like, honestly, I get them mixed up, so. Also, I don't think you can copyright a title. Also, it's probably more of a challenge to name something that's not a Nora Roberts book. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> to close out these facts, I want to leave you with a few answers that she had in the New York Times book review sec page um, about some of her personal reading habits mm. and things she likes about books. All of these come from the article on the New York Times book review uh, titled Tomi Adeyemi Hates Assigned Reading. First question is, you're organizing a literary dinner party. Which three writers, dead or alive, would you invite? Oprah Winfrey, Octavia E. Butler, and Toni Morrison. I would be extremely uncomfortable in the midst of all that greatness, and I probably wouldn't speak, but while stuffing my face with little lobster rolls, I would get to learn and be inspired by those three incredible women. So Octavia E. Butler, 
coming back to the podcast. And just because this is always interesting to hear, describe your ideal reading experience when, where, what, and how. <laughs> and uh, Adiyami simply says, my ideal reading experience is on the beach, under an umbrella, with my Kindle, with a tasty drink and a snack by my side. And you can't argue with that. I, can't. Okay. Oh. I, I don't like Kindles. Hmm. Oh, well, anyway. I don't love reading on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> awesome facts, Andrew. Good job. Thanks, Andrew. You are welcome. Okay, guys. Check it out. Hey, Bailey, what, what are we going to check out? Tell I, me. I have a question for you guys. Hmm. What's the question? <clears throat> are there not moments when you would do shameful things to get your hands on a book you have been seeking for years? I've done so much evil in my life. My favorite Garfield <laughs> Fat Cat 3-pack. Uh, so wow, that, that's a deep pull, Andrew, because I had several Garfield Fat Cat 3-packs. <laughs> that is from page 138 of Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, which is the book that I read this week. Read a book. I compare this to monks being Sherlock Holmes. Ooh. Is this your entire review is going to be like this? <laughs> what if it were? Okay, guys, the year is 1327. Good year. Ooh. We are in an abbey. Enter Brother William of Baskerville. Get is it? Is he hot? Baskerville. Oh. Wink. You guys get it? Yeah, how hot is he? How hot is he? Yeah, no. He it's, is it's... described literally the same way as Sherlock Holmes. Oh. But in a monk habit. I love it. Okay. He comes with his buddy, Adzo of Mel, who is a novice, which is he's learning from Brother William. Adzo, mm-hmm. which like imagine Adzo, but at so and then add like a w and an n so it's watson mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. yep got yeah. it. okay bit of a stretch on that one echo i don't get that yeah. one actually watson of milk add so anyway okay. um okay these gentlemen are on their way you know through the countryside and they come upon an abbey and they're called upon to solve a mystery a mysterious <sighs> murder cool that progresses to be seven mysterious killings in seven days <gasps> and they each correspond to a type of deadly sin no it's some like <laughs> it's a part of the apocalypse oh, okay like first it will like oh. you know rain fire or whatever mm-hmm, whatever mm-hmm. dun 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 this sounds pretty this sounds awesome <laughs> this is why i picked up this book yeah right so the concept is dope yeah. fine fire mm-hmm. the concept is the fire emoji mm-hmm. um really cool premise is it and- the hundred emoji yeah, it's a hundred emoji. Okay. Um, so you know, it's Sherlock Holmes set in a fourteenth century abbey, and there's like really cool details about the setting. A big part of it involves this library that's actually a labyrinth, and you have what? to figure out how to get around it because they know there's something hidden in it, but they can't find it. How cool is that, Toby? Are you regretting that you read your book read instead of my your, book? I wish I read your book. <laughs> You know, also like the different deaths are interesting in a creepy way. Like somebody's found in a vat of blood, and you're like, "What?" <laughs> His what? own blood or like pig's, other blood? Pig's what blood. kind of blood? Oh, pig's, pig's blood because they okay. slaughter pigs on the mm-hmm. on the abbey. And then somebody gets telekinesis. Mm, can't say. That's what drew me to the book, and also this is, I think, often named as like one of the best books of the last century. Yeah. Um, and it's a was a huge bestseller, I think, in the '80s. And Dylan's dad is obsessed with it. Yeah, he dads hard for this book. He definitely dads hard. That is actually the reason why I put it on my to-read list, um, and I had Andrew get it for me, was because Rick was talking about it, and I was like, wow, what a premise. And, you know, all of that stuff is really good, and the mystery keeps you going. You know, I'm usually able to solve the mystery, and I wasn't entirely in this case, so that's kind of cool. 
Humble brag. So let me like, let me read you a little bit of it so you can get a sense of it. This is again, like we're still on the elves, you know, the setting and how cool it is. Hmm. Um, I'm not going to read a ton of this. They're describing the scriptorium. Is that where the monks copy Bibles and stuff? Yes, that's where they're copying books. Um, And this is page 72. The brightest places were reserved for the antiquarians, the most expert illuminators, the rubricators, the copyists. Each desk had everything required for illuminating and copying, inkhorns, fine quills, which some monks were sharpening with a thin knife, pumice stone for smoothing the parchment, rulers for drawing the lines that the writing would follow. Next to each scribe, or at the top of each sloping desk, there was a lectern on which the codex to be copied was placed. The page was covered by a sheet with a cutout window which framed the line being copied at the moment, and some had inks of gold in various colors. Other monks were simply reading books and they wrote down their annotations in their personal notebooks or on tablets. So it gives you a really cool picture of what it would be like to be in an abbey and to be spending a lot of your time, you know, illuminating manuscripts. And it kind of sounds fun. Yeah. It's kind of like that blood and bones quote of like an imaginary world that like you would want to live in forever. But I was like, yeah, no, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You get to copy things. It's great. I want to copy books. One of the monks um, is known for his like hilarious drawings because like they have I to. I was just going to ask, does someone make silly drawings? Yeah. Because like they have to draw like a lion, but they don't know what a lion is. <laughs> <laughs> so they've never seen it. Um, and, you know, so he like, you know, puts his little spin on it. And that seems kind of fun. Uh, monk drawn horse and monk drawn whales yeah. are constant sources <laughs> of delight. Funny. So so that's all awesome. And you really get a sense of the setting and the time. The mystery's good. All good. Okay, so those are all my elves. Then I have some orcs. Uh-oh. Sorry. Uh, okay, so here's the thing about this book is it's not only a historical mystery. It is also a book of semiotics, philosophy, history, and theology. And Umberto Eco yeah. is a known, all of those things, historian, mm-hmm. semiotician? I don't know if that's that's the word. Sounds right. Uh, Philosopher, theologian. He's a very smart guy, and it's very obvious. Um, And so as you're going and you're, like, getting into this mystery, like, oh, yeah, they found another body. Nice. And then it's like, (laughs) it's like, next chapter. Let's debate the scripture for a few hundred pages. And you're like, why? But did Jesus ever laugh? And I'm like, I I don't care. And they're like, let's debate this for 50 pages. Um, So that part, I just ended up embracing the skim. Okay. I thought it would end up tying in with the mystery, but spoiler alert, it doesn't really tie oh, in. That's rough. So, so I, I would, you know, unless that really interests you, I would skip it. I, I, just, I hate when authors do that where it feels like they're making you pay to play. Mm, I didn't think of it that way. Because it's like, if you can relate it back to the mystery or the, you know, the candy of the book, like why you're reading it, I think it's amazing. And I love when they do that. And it makes me learn whatever they're talking about much better. When it's totally unrelated, I'm like, what the heck? Yeah. Like, why don't you just write a different book? I think Echo got a little bit sort of obsessed with the historical time he was writing because they're not mm. only just an abbey, but it's near the time of the schism, which there's two popes at the time. There's one in Rome and one in Avignon. And like they're debating over, was Christ poor? Like, should you be mm-hmm. like a Franciscan and be poor? Or should you like accept jewels and gifts and mm-hmm. that kind of thing? And so he's like so obsessed with it and maybe with showing his knowledge of it that it gets into a lot of details. Fair enough. He also maybe um, is a little obsessed with linguistics. Um, <laughs> and if you speak multiple languages, maybe it it, it's meant to be humorous, I think, but there's a lot of untranslated Latin, Greek, French, Spanish, Italian. Because this book was originally written in Italian, right? Yes, and it was translated. Oh. This is the page 46, and this is a specific character that is known to like not make any sense. He's like, 
Haha, you like this negromancio de Domini Nostri Gesù Cristo, e anco joad mel do e plisier me douleur, cave el diablo, samper wait lading in wait for one of those angulum to snack up at my heels, but Salvatore is not stupidus. You get the point. Wow. And, you know, even like the last line of the book is in Latin and they don't translate it. So it's like you have to look that up. I wonder if there's like a Kindle digital edition that you could get where you could like click on it. That would be so much easier than like typing it out. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That is the majority of my orcs. Um, And that made me surprised that it was so popular because I think it's one of those books that like you think back fondly and like, oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. that book was great. But like, am I going to pick it up and read it again? Probably not because of all these other things. I also think it's a smarty pants book that people like to say they've read. Yes, I agree. (laughs) Like, I understood that. I read that and I understood that. Mm -hmm. And I'm smart. But it's like, but would you read it again? Okay, so here's my experience of the book. At first, really, really liked it. Then in the middle, like, why are we talking about this? Then at the end, really, really liked it. Because there's a point where they're like, okay, well, we're done with that. Now let's solve the mystery. And I'm like, yes. Mm. So as I was reading, I was like, this is a three star. But then the end, ooh, maybe this is four. But I was like, overall, my experience is a three star. Mm, With that said, if you're interested in the premise and you're okay with skimming, pick this up. Nice. That's my review. Very cool. Reminds me of my favorite Fat Cat three pack where the (laughs) middle strips are all normal talking about the Anabaptist schism in Munster. But then at the end, that very funny cat knocks over that very dumb dog off the Mm -hmm, table mm -hmm. and it's it's all Mm -hmm. worth it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe if like all of the complicated, uh, you know, scripture talk, half of it wasn't in Latin, maybe it would be more enjoyable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe if you learn Latin. (laughs) It reminds me of a lot of Russian authors, too, where they they feel very comfortable. Like classic Russian authors, like just being like, okay, stop the plot. Now we're going to sit at a table and debate the scripture. Right. Like, yeah. It's like, uh. But with that said, Dylan, I think we should recreate the joke that, that you said to me as I was sitting on the couch reading this book. No. Let's recreate it. We're doing it. Okay. <sighs> you know who would be great at solving this murder? Who? Monk. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. Stupid. <laughs> Tony Shalhoub uh, wants to know your location. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, Umberto Echo's Name of the Rose, three stars. Andrew, do you have any facts on Mr. Echo? I'm, I've thought about this. I was like, I bet this guy has some crazy facts. Yes. Yeah. He's a notorious weirdo in my head. I don't know anything about him. Uh, Echo was born on January 5th, 1932 in northern Italy. His father was an accountant and three separate times got dragged into by Italy uh, to fight in wars. Hmm. But he's arrived. Uh, during World War II, Umberto and his mother relocated to a small mountainside town um, in Piemont, Italy, in northern Italy. He enrolled in the University of Turin and studied philosophy and theology writing his thesis on Thomas Aquinas. After graduating, he worked briefly for a radio station, uh, but quickly published his first book, which was based on his thesis in 1956, and then built on that to return uh, to university to be a professor, uh, a job he would hold at various schools for the remainder of his life. He steadily produced more work, initially scholarly works on aesthetics and semiotics for academic settings, but uh, slowly pivoted uh, to more popular culture. Hey, for all us, for all us dumb people, not me, but like other dumb people. Could someone define semiotics? It's the study of signs and hmm. symbols. Okay. I think, Andrew, am I right? Please say I'm right. Yes, that is correct. Okay. So he's just Dr. Robert Langdon from the Da Vinci Code. Got it. He, it's like very postmodern. It's very like, this is like the name of the rose. It's like, it's not the rose. It's the name of the rose. And it's, it's, I felt like I was understanding until you said that part. It's Don't a worry very about it. Field. It's, it's, very it's very confusing. It's very confusing, but very smart. Like, if you get it, like, you're really smart. So, if you needed that explanation, um, you're welcome. I didn't need it. <laughs> 
The Name of the Rose was his first novel. He ended up writing eight before passing away. So I'm wondering if he always keeps this sort of weird uh, divergence between the novel story and the... um, Philosophizing. Yeah, his philosophizing. Because he definitely drew on his background studying medieval subjects and other things that he'd researched in college that, that had interested him. But either way, this is his first novel. It was a major success upon release and is actually still one of the best-selling novels of all time. Mm-hmm. As I said, he published eight novels total. Um, that includes other works such as Foucault's Pendulum, which suggests that he maybe uses some philosophy in that <laughs> one, um, and The Island of the Day Before, um, as well as numerous works of nonfiction. Uh, he divided his time between an apartment in Milano, in Milan, and a vacation house near Urbino. <laughs> Urbino. <laughs> he had a 30,000 volume library in the former and a 20,000 volume library in the latter, which quick maths is 50,000 volumes just in those two locations. Echo died in 2016 of pancreatic cancer at his home in Milan. And here are some other sort of just sort of popcorn of interesting facts about him. Umberto Echo has a cameo in Michelangelo Antonioni's 1961 film La Notte. Mm. He's also referenced in The Simpsons, continuing that streak. Mm. He's referenced in season 22, the first episode, which is entitled Elementary School Musical, in which Milhouse is shown to have placed a bet on the author to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. (laughs) Towards the end of his life, Umberto Eco came to believe that his family name was an acronym of Ex Caelus Oblatus, from Latin, A Gift from the Heavens. What? Which apparently was customary at the time. If you didn't have a, a last name, they would give you like an acronym last name. Um, so Ooh. isn't that weird? That's really weird. It's kind of interesting to decide that your own last name means a gift from the heavens. When you say it like that, well, ex Kylus oblatus to you too. <laughs> uh, this is taken from a, from a blog called www.bookstellyouwhy.com. This is number six on their list of 10 facts about him. Lest you begin to think of him as a stuffy intellectual, know that Echo has a great love for TV crime dramas like Starsky and Hutch, (laughs) Columbo, Miami Vice, and CSI. Nice. But he has another quote that I found. The good of the book lies in its being read. A book is made up of signs that speak of other signs, which in turn speak of things. Without an eye to read them, a book contains no signs that produce no concept. Therefore, it is dumb. Wow, so not a support, so not. not supportive of the two-read list. Oops. Uh, two other facts, also taken from that same website. In his adolescence, Echo read many comic books and even wrote his own. In an interview with the Paris Review, he recalled spending hours on making his books to look as though they'd actually been printed, though the work was so intensive that he never finished any of them. Bailey, do you recognize yourself in that? Yes. <laughs> a shocking confession. Bailey was very into bookbinding. Yeah as a young person i don't think i've ever heard a fact that tracks more completely with someone that well, i was I know. into artist bookmaking which is a little different than book binding please but. elaborate i was just thinking the other day i was like it's been a while since we heard a young bailey story is there a young bailey story connected with this well i mean in college every monday there would be a collection of classes on artist bookmaking and i would go and it would just be me and a bunch of ladies from the town because <laughs> no students would show up oh it sounds kind of interesting well book binding is like the act of putting the book back together okay yeah i guess imagine like a pop-up book that it's some it's more interesting so you might have a cool way of binding it or mm. like interesting folding of the pages that, that kind of thing that's cool do any of your artistically bound books survive to this day yeah they're in a closet somewhere that's Instagram. <laughs> well, awesome. But yeah, he seems like an interesting guy, and uh, it was fun feeling very dumb yeah. learning about him. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do this, guys. 
I'm kind of scared about the game. Like, am I going to be able to figure it out? I don't know. Am I going to get out of the labyrinth? I hope so. I hope so. Andrew, do you have a game for us? And I'm excited about it, but it's it's a little weird. Ooh, that makes me even more excited about it. This is one of those games that relies on your imagination. (gasps) Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is one we don't allow Dylan to play because he'll kill us. Yeah, he'll destroy us. So this is called Ain't You a Saint? (laughs) 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 And this is inspired (laughs) both by sort of the general fact that Children of Bone Bone uses a lot of mythology, which I don't mean to harp on anyone's beliefs, but a lot of the stories around saints in the Catholic Church have a lot of mythology around them, whether or not you believe them to be true, no judgment. Mm -hmm. At the very least, you can say there's some wild claims about the saints. Exactly. That's what I mean to say. And so what I found is, thank you, mentalfloss.com. This uh, article is called 15 Unusual Patron Saints. Mm. And the way I'd like this game to work um, is I'm going to tell you the name of a saint, and I want you to tell me what you think that they are the patron saint of. Okay. Okay. After you've both given your answer, and go as wild as possible, I will tell you what they actually are the patron saint of. I will give you 1,000 points if you are correct. Sweet. Otherwise, I will divide 10 points between the two of you. Ooh, okay. I like um, it. Based on how much I like your answers. But again, if you get what they are correct, you receive 1,000 points. We will do four rounds of it. And I think that should lead us to it. I really want to get one right. Let's do it. Let's do it. I really hope someone does. I'm going to try. I'm not even going to try and joke. I'm probably going to joke. Okay. (laughs) So we're going to go with our first saint here. Saint Adjutor. Spelled A-D-J-U-T-O-R. Adjutor. Patron saint of bullfighting. Bullfighters. Bullfighting and bullfighters. That's a wonderful answer, Toby. What do you think about Adjutor's background led him to be the patron saint of that? Give me a little flavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was a saint. Like, he, he had to do something to become a saint, right? So um, he made best friends with a bull and also a bullfighter. And then he invited them to dinner and didn't tell each other that the other one was coming. Awkward. And then they showed up. But then he made them all become friends. And that's how he became a saint. Don't you have to die to be a saint? And then he had a brutal cardiac arrest. <laughs> okay. Well, Saint Agitor is the patron saint of soldiers. And he died in mm-hmm. a during the Crusades mm. um, going up, you know, against the infidels. I thought you were going to say a hill. Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah, don't say the infidels. Uh, going up, you know, you know, trying to... Fighting con- in the Holy War. Fighting in the Holy War. Well, okay. <laughs> so... St. Agitor is the patron saint of swimmers and swimming um, and those at dangers of drowning, apparently because he, during the First Crusade, swam all the way back to France. All right. Okay. With his armor on? Or was transported back to France by Mary Magdalene. Dylan says he knew it. Or swam to Crusader territory. Mm. You knew it, Dylan? Uh, Because in the the Olympics, they were talking about it. (laughs) So yeah. this is this is hard because like if you're trying to sincerely guess, then yes, it won't be funny, but that you want to be funny to get Andrew to give you points. Yeah. Let me tell you something. Swimming is maybe the more normal of about okay. of what we're gonna do mm-hmm. here. Okay. For first round warm up. Bailey, I'm gonna give you seven points because Ooh. you mentioned a crusade and <laughs> and he was involved in that. Toby, you get three points because I do like the meat cute you <laughs> set up in there. Meat cute. Ah. Uh, next we have Saint Columbanus. St. Columbanus is the patron saint of doves, um, and he got that because he was pecked to death by um, a group of doves that got angry because he stepped in honey. 
So, mm-hmm. You know that yeah. saints usually have to die like defending their faith or something. They don't just get killed by random the, animals. The honey was holy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All uh, right, and uh, Toby. I think you'll find he was the patron saint of Little League softball, <laughs> and uh, he died um, being buried under a mound of demonic softballs. <laughs> Please continue listening to us if you <laughs> if you have a reverence for saints. I apologize for these two. Uh, saint Columbanus is the patron saint of motorcycles mm. and motorcyclists uh, because he spent most of the 6th and 7th century roaming around Europe and that love of the open road translated wow. to motorcyclists. That's a tenuous link. <laughs> all right. All right, nerd. <laughs> I will say a six to four here to Toby. So Bailey still has a narrow lead, um, 11 to nine, uh, okay, because okay. I, I like the strangeness of the Little League softball uh, versus Doves. All right, number three. This is one of my favorites. Saint Drogo, like Carl Drogo. Okay, patron saint of horse riding because of Carl Drogo and a okay. holy death somehow. Maybe don't literally use Carl Drogo, but sure. <laughs> Too late. It's too late. Final answer. Um, I think Saint Drogo is the patron saint of letter writing because <laughs> he died he, writing a letter. He had to deliver a letter and he had to walk hmm. really far. And then when he got there, he died. That seems like he'd be the patron saint of postmen, but that's okay. Okay, fine. Mail carriers. No. Let the record show that I said this is one of my favorites, and you picked mail carriers. <laughs> Apparently, that's what I'm really interested in. But no, St. Drogo was so afflicted by a mysterious ailment that made him physically repulsive that he's now considered the patron saint of unattractive people. Aww. Entirely unrelatedly, he's also the patron saint of coffee houses. Okay. Okay. Hmm. All right. Uh, so you guys split the points five to five. Yes. Because uh, I have no preference between that's, your yeah, two that's his ridiculous way of answers. He disliked our answers equally. <laughs> All right. Last one. All right, last one. I hope I get a thousand points on this one. <laughs> I really hope so too. Last one. St. Julian the Hospitaller. Okay, I think this is tricking you to think hospital. I'm going to say he's the patron saint of motels. And that's because he used to run a motel for, you know, traveling abbeys, I mean, traveling <laughs> monks and abbots. And he would leave them little chocolates on their pillow. We'll keep the candle on for you. Um, uh, I believe he was the patron saint of uh, physical therapists, and he died uh, because he was praising the Lord so hard that he hyperextended both of his knees and died from the shock. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So, no, this is good. No one got a thousand points here. What? But, okay, Bailey, I'm giving you a lot of points because... (gasps) Saint Ju- this is a quote from the Mental Floss article. St. Julian the Hospitaller's name refers to the fact that he opened a hostel for travelers and dedicated his life to providing hospitality for the sick and needy. So that's incredibly close to what you said. However, he also re- rehabilitated people who had had sports injuries. <laughs> but, again, continuing the quote, but only after he'd killed his parents in a twist on the story of Oedipus. For that reason, he's the patron saint of murderers, should you ever need one. So he, <laughs> he's not, but he, is the, he did open a hostel for travelers. So Bailey, you're going to get the full 10 plus another 500. Ooh. Also, let it be known that on Wikipedia, it says St. Julian uh, is invoked as the patron of hospitality by travelers on a journey far from home, pray hoping to find safe lodging. Sup, 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 sup. That, that sup. sounds like 750 points right there. St. Howard Johnson, St. Days in, St. Latinta. 
Saint Motel 8. Saint Econo Lodge. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that means I win. Oh, Bailey wins by such a large margin, it's not even worth keeping track. It's as though I didn't even write the points down. My winning streak is dead. My winning streak of one. (laughs) I win. Awesome. Okay, well. That's awesome. I win. Now it's time for Dylan to choose books at random from our shelves to read next. It is time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. Tubby. I just want to say, I've been pretty harsh on books recently. I really hope I get a good book. You're saying you have a burning desire to know what your next book is? Yes, Dylan. Tell me. Next time? You mean number 17, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin? Ooh. Ooh, it's been a while since we've had a Baldwin. Yes, please. This is one we have a physical copy of. I'm excited. Oh, Toby, I have I read this book in college and remember liking it quite a bit, but I do not remember it very well. So I'm excited to hear your review. Awesome. Yeah, it'll be our second Baldwin because you read uh, another one. You read Giovanni's Giovanni's Room. room. Yeah. Cool. My turn. We can try to discover the mystery of how much Andrew liked that book when Bailey reads number 77, the number one ladies detective agency. That was a stretch. The number one (laughs) ladies detective agency by Alexander McCall Smith. Okay, I'm excited for this one. This one I think I got from you, Toby. I feel like you were like, this book was good. Or maybe we were at a library book sale and I was like, have you read this one? You're like, yeah, it's good. If that's the case, yeah. sometimes she'll ask you, it's like, is this book good? It's like, oh, it's okay. And she'll like, whatever, I'm getting it. I, I think that might have been more the case. I, I think, uh, again, read, I read this a very long time ago. It's quite an old book, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I've forgotten as well most about it. But I think, yeah, vaguely good impression. Well, is we'll it, find out next yeah. time. Is it the number one? Ladies Detective book of all time. Uh. So in two weeks, Andrew's reading Pimp by Iceberg Slim. I will be reading The Number One Ladies Detective Agency by Alexander McCall Smith. And then two weeks after that, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. And mystery book. And mystery book. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the To Read List Podcast and on Instagram at the To Read List Podcast. And if you would like to help us out a little bit, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, but Apple Podcasts in particular, because that does help more people find our podcast and we get a little dopamine hit whenever we get a new review, especially if it's positive. Even if it's negative, it's nice to be seen. And if you really, really like this podcast tell a friend about it find somebody who likes books and you tell them hey put down that copy of children of blood and bone toby told me it's not worth it and then listen to this podcast i'm sure it'll go over very well (laughs) thanks to toby and andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me to dylan for sound recording and to jillian beth turkey for composing our intro song see you in two weeks happy reading books 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 books, books, books. books. cut cut that (laughs) (laughs) don't tell me what to do